0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning and welcome to Story City Church. We're excited to have you, whether you're joining us here at Pickwick Gardens in person or you're joining us online. It is a pleasure to be with you. My name is Jared Ossilear and I'm one of the pastors at this church, I have the privilege of getting to serve you in a place where your story matters. We want you to know that your story actually helps tell the collective story of Story City. That's one of the reasons it's our name, but ultimately, excuse me, it's our name because we together are a part of what God is doing in the story of LA. And so we, we wanna continue to welcome you to the family. Our family consists of the Burbank campus and the Granada Hills campus. And even though we're all meeting together right now, uh, we as a family have a purpose to lead the communities of Burbank and Granada Hills and the Valley and greater Los Angeles into healthy relationships with Jesus and people. That's what God has called us to do. And so to do that, we're a church that raises up church planters and plants churches uh, so that more and more people can come to know and understand the gospel and and see uh, Jesus rescue and renew all creation through his work, and through his church. And so we're excited about that. That is the gospel, that God himself came to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. And we believe that uh, he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that having accomplished his task and making way for all things to be rescued and renewed, that he now stands at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. And he sent the Holy Spirit to help us to learn how to love Jesus and people truly. We, we desperately need Jesus' help to learn how to do that well. And so Jesus has called us into citizenship in this new kingdom, but he's also called us into familia with each other or ohana for my uh, Hawaiian dude I met last week. So thanks for being back here. All right, we're going to get into our message for the day. But before we do, I've got a question for you. Here is my question for today. What do you want most in life? Now, right now online, somebody's going, hey, they're playing the tape from last week. Funny moment, uh, I, I knew that we we're going to be talking about the same scripture we did last week, and if some of you are going, I think this sounds familiar, congratulations, you at least listened last week, you caught that, uh, but I had to ask my wife, obviously she dresses me, I had to ask my wife this morning, hey babe, I didn't wear this shirt last week, did I? Because that would be really, although it might make it even funnier if I'm talking about the same scripture, and I wore the same shirt, but she's like, I don't know, you're going to have to go, so I had to go back this morning and look on Facebook to make sure I wasn't wearing the same shirt as I was last week. So anyway, there you go. So why am I repeating this message? And and I think this bears slowing down in this part of Jesus's sermon for for specific purpose. I think we need to stop here and, and dive a little bit deeper, rest a little bit more in this scripture in verse six again, so that we can begin to wrestle with this, examine it more clearly. We need to have a grasp on it as we move forward in Jesus' sermon. Now, I've had some great feedback from some of you who've been wrestling through the question of what you want most in life. And I want to encourage you, uh, if you haven't wrestled with that question, I'm not letting you get away with it. Here we go again. But for those of you who have, I want to continue to do so. Take time to let it get past your defenses and your excuses. Allow the question to find the real you. Jesus already has, and he chose you and loves you. Despite that, he knows the real you and me. And he loves us to the fullest extent that love is. I mean, this, I want you to stop and think about this for a second. When God says that he loves us, that he literally loves us to the absolute fullest extent of love possible, love beyond what we can truly even understand. When God says he loves us, it's not like it's, well, I'm gonna give you three quarters, and at least if you show me, you know, an eighth back, a sixteenth back, uh, you didn't know there's math in this sermon, huh? Either did I. That's okay. Here's the thing: God doesn't care what you give back to Him. That's not why He loves you. He loves you not because of what you give Him, but because of who He is. And so the reality is, is that when God says He loves you, He loves you to the fullest extent that love is right now, as you are, not for who you might be. If you think about that, that's pretty overwhelming. At least it is for me. And so here's where we're at with Jesus' sermon on the mount so far. To be followers of Jesus, we must realize we can't do it on our own, that we're poor in spirit, that we're broken even in our best efforts and good attempts. That should make us mourn the helplessness and hopelessness of our situation, that we can't do anything about our own righteousness. And yet it should also bring us to a place of compassion to the world around us, knowing that they are in the same situation as us. We then realize to live out the sermon, we can't drag around the things that we think validate us in front of God because we don't need those or make us improved in front of God, that we are accepted and approved because of who he is. But we also don't need to keep carrying around all the baggage we think we deserve out of the guilt and shame that we carry for the the stuff that we do. And so we don't need to carry our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We must be meek, meaning that we don't own anything spiritually good or bad that is of eternal value, that Jesus owns those things. And so we, we simply trust and follow him for our needs like, parent, like children depending on their parents. To hunger and thirst after righteousness literally means to be starving or thirsting for God's righteousness and holiness as the most valuable thing in our lives. To crave it like air itself. Can we be honest for a moment. Most of us don't really even know what it means to truly hunger and thirst in that way anymore. I'm not even talking spiritually at this moment. I'm talking about physically. Most of us don't truly know what it means to be really hungry or thirsty. Some of us do, but not all of us. I remember growing up, my dad was diagnosed with multiple myeloma from Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam. And I remember he came to this place where uh, it had attacked his spine and he couldn't work any longer. It kind of came quick. And uh, my mom, trying to raise two teenage boys, take care of the household, and take care of my dad, was also in school trying to figure out how she can get a better job. But she only made something like $14,000 a year. She was working part time. And she couldn't quit because she had the health benefits. And so if she quit, then it would have been uh, a pre existing condition and my dad would not have been covered any longer. And so I remember our family trying to figure out what are, we, what are we going to do? How are we going to take care of this? And my mom being the incredible entrepreneurial uh, fighting woman that she is, she's pretty amazing. She, uh, she borrowed a llama. You're like, what does that have to do with all of this? Uh, here's what we did. We eventually ended up raising llamas, miniature donkeys, pygmy goats, herding, and livestock dogs. And, uh, and what we did was um, our job was to take the llamas and even the dogs to different shows all over the place in order to raise the value of the llama and the dogs. And that way, when you had championship lines, then you could breed those and actually make money off of the litters or off of the llama babies. And then when the llama had actually won a championship, you're able to return the llama to the one we borrowed it from. They get a championship llama and we have llamas with championship bloodlines. Now, I know that sounds really weird. It still sounds weird to me. Somebody asked before when I was sharing this story, are there any pictures of you at these llama shows? No. Thank God there are no pictures. But I will tell you that, that uh, just as a side note, something you should know, uh, llama shows are for the eclectic <laughs> because they're half mixed between a horse show and a dog show. So they sort of judge it like a horse, but then you have to run around the ring with the llama on a halter just like the dog show. It's definitely not coming on after the Super Bowl, I can tell you that. But here's the thing that that allowed us to make it. It allowed us to make it. And so we would travel all over the place. And I remember specifically coming back with one of these rare breed dogs uh, from a show in Mexico that we had gone down to. And it was in this moment that I truly understood something that that I probably never, never would have before. And that is that that even being poor in the United States of America is unimaginably rich in many, many, many places of the world. Even being poor is unimaginably rich in many places in the world. And for me, as a young 12, 13-year-old boy, it was crossing the border at Mexicali that I truly understood what it meant to be poor. Parents in Mexicali would often maim their own children So that passing tourists would feel pity enough to give money. And so when you sit in the long lines, you know, obviously this is many years before COVID, but when you sit in the long lines waiting to cross the border, there would be child after child after child with defects that were obviously not birth related defects. Over the years, I've been fortunate enough to have visited many other countries And those experiences have continually served to remind me how much we have to be thankful for. Now, I'm not saying that none of us go through incredible hardships or difficulties or that we don't struggle here. There are some of us here that worry about where food is going to come from every day, that worry about where I'm going to sleep and where I'm going to eat right here in this place. But when Jesus is talking about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, what he's imploring us to do is not think of it in a way like I'm standing in front of the open refrigerator like what am I gonna choose? What am I gonna eat today? Which meal I'm going to choose from inside my fridge? That's not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says that we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's the if God doesn't do something right now, I don't know what I'm going to do. If God doesn't come through right now, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't know what's going to happen. Now here, listen to me. This place of dependence on God is where we're supposed to be living. And I'm not saying that we can't have possessions. I'm not saying that that's where we have to be. What I'm saying is that whether we are poor or rich or somewhere in between, the attitude of our heart should be one that is fully dependent on God. The attitude of our heart, no matter what our economic status is, one that says, God, I'm desperate for you. I hunger and thirst for you in a way that if I don't have you, if I'm not with you, if I'm not thinking about you, if I'm not spending time with you, then I am I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm ruined. And part of learning to live that out is learning to believe in the promises Jesus makes with it. Jesus didn't say, if you hunger and thirst well enough, you'll earn fulfillment. He said, simply desire God's righteousness and you will receive it. Many of us still haven't fully believed in our identity in Jesus. There's many of us here who are still checking out this Jesus thing. You're still trying to figure out if this is for you or not for you. And and, and listen, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, it's still the same struggle. We still struggle to believe But the Bible says that when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is God, when we surrender our will and the way we think for the way that He thinks, then we will, be, we will be filled with that righteousness. We are no longer seeking forgiveness because we know we already have it. If, as followers of Jesus, we're still trying to find forgiveness, then we do not believe in Jesus' word. We've been justified by the faith God gave us and we have peace with God. The debt's been paid and we aren't under that any longer. The righteousness of Christ has been applied to us. This is a big Christianese word. Here we go. This is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. By the Holy Spirit, that's been applied to us and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us. And so true happiness and true blessedness cannot, however, be understood unless we really see what it's contrasted with what we would be without Jesus' grace. If you're taking notes today, this is our first observation. Knowing where we stand is the first step to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want to switch it out? I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much, Henry. was like, stop giving me attention. Guys, you know that they show up at like six in the morning to be here to get all this stuff set up. That's amazing. Can we give the production team a huge round of applause? Thank you, guys. All right, can we get a little bit deep here now that we're past all the crackling, right? Can we, can we just take a moment and get a little deep? Here, here's the deal. You ready? Let's talk about God for a minute. This, this helps if we're trying to hunger and thirst after righteousness, we have to know where we stand. And to do that, we have to understand who God is. And so let's talk about him for a minute. To be the one true God that is unequaled in all of creation, inside and outside of creation, to be the one true God, he must be perfect. He has to be. He has to be perfect. Because if God is not perfect, then it's not only possible, but it's likely that he would make mistakes. Right? If God isn't perfect, then it's not only possible, it's likely that he would make mistakes. If God makes mistakes, then he can't possibly have rules, laws, or standards that are consistently right all the time. Because he could possibly make mistakes. If God then is subjective and not always right, then he can't be good. If God then is absolutely good and perfect, he can't be a part of anything that is not good. And he can't say anything that is not absolutely perfect, something that could make mistakes, something that has the ability to make mistakes. He can't say that's good in the same way that he couldn't be good if he made mistakes. That means that he... Right, he can't acknowledge us as perfectly good. If we're not absolutely perfect, then we can't be in relationship with God because God can't be around that which is not perfect. He can't overlook our imperfections and our treasonous rebellion against him and say, well, that's fine. I'll just overlook it. It's not that big of a deal because then what he's saying is it's okay to not be perfect. We already said that that means it's not good. So the standard to be accepted by God is nothing less than absolute perfection. You guys all got that down, right? Good, I'm not the only one. (laughs) We literally have no excuse because anything that we've done that's contrary to God's ways, wills, thoughts, or desires, including our thoughts, will, and desires or beliefs, is pure sin. To be guilty, that means we only need to have violated God's will even in thought once in our life. But we have an additional problem, too. The Bible says that we have not just our own sins to account for, but that actually we were born into sin, that we were actually born from our parents going all the way back. Some of you are like, yeah, my parents, definitely. I'm talking about Adam and Eve, okay? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve that we were born into sin. It's kind of like this. Has anybody ever ever read the vehicle code before, the California vehicle code? If you haven't seen it, it's like this thick. It's super thick, okay? It, you've probably only read it if you're trying to get out of a ticket or if you're trying to find that loophole that allows motorcycles to turn left on a red when the light won't turn for them at all. It's crazy. But, but here's the deal. There is no way you can drive more than five minutes without violating something in the California vehicle code. It's, it's physically impossible. My wife and I were having a debate on this uh, not too long ago. We were both at work, and she was actually like, no, that's not true. I can totally drive without violating the vehicle code whatsoever. And so we had that little you know, competitive battle. Listen, if you don't know me, I, my wife and I are super competitive, and I don't mind losing as long as, long as it's not to her. Okay? She is the same way, and so here's the deal. We had this little bet going, and I said, I bet you, you cannot make it all the way home without violating the vehicle code. She's like, oh, yeah, I can, and so she jumps in her car. I jump in my car. We had driven separately, and I follow her home from from work. She gets there, and, man, she had driven perfect. Like, just, I mean, she stopped. Completely. No California stops. Literally turn signal was on appropriately. She took the right time to, to change the lane. Everything was done to perfection. And you could see it in her face when she jumped out. She was like, I just won this. And I, I know, you know, I just won this. And uh, so she jumped out, she's beaming and she's like, you know, here, here it is. I did it. I did it. I win. And I was like, Nope. <laughs> She's like, no, there's no way. I absolutely drove perfect. There is no way that I could have lost that bet. And I said, no, actually you did drive perfect. She's like, well, then what are you talking about? I said, your windows are illegally tinted. And I know because I did it. (laughs) You lost, I'm just saying. When we understand that there is nothing that we can bring to God to be justified or righteous, we begin to understand the helplessness of our situation. It's like trying to not violate the vehicle code. It's just, it's impossible. But what do I mean? I mean that each of us has been created in the image of a living God. We call that the Imago Dei. And as the image bearers of God, we have the capacity and the desire to do good. But because we have a nature broken by sin, we don't do what we know we should do. And that's for those of us who are still checking Jesus out and those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time. When we do manage to do good through our own efforts, we find that it's corrupted by that broken nature and so it doesn't come out as that perfect good. Now this suppression of the perfect good is something we can't even control because we're ultimately born with this condition and we choose it. This is why when we do something good, we can't even hold on to that happiness or satisfaction that comes from it. It it doesn't last because our goodness isn't the ultimate goodness of God. For those of us who have been chasing after blessedness and happiness, if you wonder why, I can't quite hang on to it. It just is just there. I get it and it just goes away. The question is, are we seeking after that? Are we seeking after the righteousness of God? We're true happiness, and true blessedness comes from. See, when we truly understand how much God has done for us, that he loves us enough to sacrifice his own son, even while we were still his enemies, it should help us to be truly grateful, to be truly grateful, even overwhelmed and shocked and in awe of him. This is why we want to have the righteousness of Christ above everything, not because we want some future blessing, but because we should understand how amazingly blessed we already are are. No matter what our circumstances in this life, we should be aware of where we stand in our spiritual eternal life. I'll, I'll tell you guys right now, there, there is little that cannot be overcome by having an attitude of gratefulness, an attitude of thankfulness. Um, this week, uh, Man, it was just, it was one of those weeks. There's a lot going on in the church. And, uh, and we had started off, my wife and I started off this week doing an assessment for church planters, which I love. It's one of my favorite things we get to do. And um, I woke up about one in the morning on Tuesday morning with this overwhelming crushing sense of you're inadequate. You can't do this. You shouldn't be in this church. You can't pastor these people well. How are you going to stand in front of them when you're not good enough for this? It was to the point where it almost felt physical. You know what I'm talking about? And here's the thing, when, when we get into those moments where the enemy is trying to uh, remind us of all of our brokenness, remind us of the ways that we're not good enough, you know what crushes it every time is being thankful. And so literally at one in the morning, I'm just going, Jesus, you're so good. Thank you for the ways that you have f- healed me, that you've changed me. Thank you for the ways that I am more mature today than I was even last week. Thank you for the things that you're doing in me and through me that I'm not even aware of. Thank you, Lord, for, for how you have worked in my life. Thank you for what you have given me in this family and the people that I have supporting me. Thank you for the elders who stand alongside and pray for me that I can turn to and call and say, hey guys, here's where I'm at this week and they are instantly praying for me. Thank you for the people who who I don't even know, I haven't even met yet who are praying for me. And what happens is my heart begins to change. There's something incredible about as we begin to seek and spend that time with the Lord, how it changes our very perspectives. And so hunger and thirsting for righteousness becomes not just a reminder of where we stand, but also a test for our hearts to see if we are in the right place. Is the fruit of the Spirit of God evident in our lives? Are we even concerned about that? Are we experiencing love for God and for people? Because the Bible says we can love God, but if we do not love our neighbor, there's a problem there. Are we showing love and peace, long-suffering with joy, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, and self-control? Are we enjoying our Christian life and experience? Do we have peace with God? Do we always rejoice in him? If we're not, the only explanation is that we're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because if we are, we will be filled. There's no question. There's no qualification. It's an absolute promise of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Pastor and author Zach S. Wine says it this way. Many things have the appearance of being able to satisfy the deep needs of the soul. But Jesus declares that he is true food and true drink. John 6.55. Jesus is neither a replica of food nor a forgery drink. He is an authentic, his is an authentic or original nourishment. The kind that human beings are made to feed upon and be sustained by. Jesus is not simply the provision of God for the soul made Christian. Jesus is the provision of God for what a human requires to be a true being. Jesus is real, not only because he is different in kind from other things, but because he has a capacity to rule and satisfy the human soul that other things do not. So how do we actually become happy and blessed? The key to any lasting change is to take our eyes off ourselves and to focus on Jesus. This is what I was talking about this week when I was talking about when I was describing what happened to me this week is, is getting our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus. Look how we live determines the things that we value. How we live determines the things that we value. If we value money over people, we will always make decisions that benefit us financially, even over relationships If we value our image, we will do things that ensure people see us in a certain way. Whether that's conscious or unconscious, it's what we value comes out in our life. If we are primarily focused on the things of God, those things will be more important than anything else. It's where we'll spend our thoughts, our time, our money, our energy, not out of obligation or guilt, but out of a deep desire for God himself. You see, people who really want something show evidence of it. Do we really want righteousness? What is the evidence in our life? Is it our greatest desire? Is it the deepest longing of our hearts? Can we honestly say that we truly desire above everything else in this world to truly know God and to be like the Lord Jesus, to be rid of self in every shape and form and to live only always and entirely to his glory and his honor. Jesus says, if you want to, you will. So once again, how do we do this? This is where it gets real. While we can't do anything to save ourselves, the gospel does demand a response. It doesn't depend on our actions. God doesn't depend on our actions to complete his, and yet we are required to respond to him. It's not our action that saves us, and yet our reaction is an important part of how God moves in and through our lives. There's a story in the Bible of a blind man who approached Jesus for healing. And he knew that he couldn't heal himself. He needed to see Jesus. So what did he do? He put himself in Jesus's path. Now, he focused on where Jesus would be. He didn't have anything to do with his own healing. But he focused on the one who could heal him. And if we want to change, we have to stop focusing on the things we think that are good in our lives and the things that we think God could never love us for. We need to stop looking at what is good and bad with us and get our eyes, our mind, our hearts and our focus on Jesus. And so let me tell you this, are you struggling with porn? Are you struggling with some sort of addiction? Are you struggling with anger or control issues or overeating or name your sin? Here, all of us have it. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, we need to stop trying to fix ourselves. Did you hear me? We need to stop trying to fix ourselves. The reality is, is that that is not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so if we want to see true victory in areas of our life that we have not been able to overcome. We actually have to stop trying to fix ourselves and we need to get our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to spend time with Jesus. When we spend time with Jesus, when we get to know him, when we truly begin to love him, we can't help but be changed. We become the kind of people that we really want to be down inside, the people that God wants us to be holy, clean, pure, with love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self control. We have hope. The Bible says, with Jesus' death and res- resurrection, as those devoted to Him, we are justified. That means the penalty for our sins has been paid and we owe nothing else. And for now, He is sanctifying us. That means continually working in us to make us more like Jesus. One day, Jesus will return and restore all things to the way God intends them to be. As we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. This is our hope. We can be happy and blessed because because of what God has done in us and for us. If you want to know more about Jesus, what he's done, who he is, and who that makes us, we would love to talk to you about that. Come see me or an elder after church. We'd love to have that conversation. For those of you who are online, you can follow the link put up. By Story City Admin. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. You're amazing. Thank you that who we are is determined by who you say we are and not what we think of ourselves and not what other people say of us. I pray, Father, that we would believe in the identity that you've given us as we begin to apprentice you, as we begin to follow you. Thank you for your good Your grace, your mercy, again, the ways that you love us that we don't even see. And so I pray that you help us to come to a place where we truly hunger and thirst after you with all of us. Meet us right there in that place, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.